0: Our text this morning is found in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. "'Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture,' says the Lord. "'Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, "'You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. "'Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doing,' says the Lord." Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when men shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel out of the north country, out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their land. In 1051 B.C.,
1: Saul was made the first king over Israel. We looked at that some last week. After 40 years of his reign, King David, the youngest son of Jesse, was made king, a man After God's own heart, the Bible tells us. A great king, standing as a model to this very day of what a king should be like, even though a sinner. To him, God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of his offspring would sit upon his throne and that his kingdom would never end. Verse 16 of that chapter says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But very soon after David passed off the scene, it became clear that that prophecy was in trouble, in jeopardy. The United Kingdom comes to an end with Solomon, the son of David. And after Solomon, the divided kingdom emerges, the ten tribes in the north with their line of kings and the two tribes in the south with their line of kings. And down through the centuries, it appears that the disobedience of those kingly lines is going to bring down the wrath of God, both on the northern Israel and the southern Judah. Samuel had said it at the inauguration of Saul. You remember if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king, First Samuel twelve twenty five. So for centuries, the people lived with this tension. On the one hand, they had a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the kingly line of David would never end. The kingdom would be established forever. And on the other hand, they had this threat. Hanging over them. If you do wickedly, you will be swept away. You and your king. And the people who held before the people of Israel for four centuries, this tension, were the prophets. And in the message of the prophets, it finds also its ultimate resolution. Now, the ministry of the prophets through these centuries of the divided kingdom was a constant reminder to the two houses of Israel, that God still owned the world. He still had rights over the creation. He still controlled history. He still had a special claim on the children of Abraham. And they ought to obey him. Year after year, it was proclaimed to the people. They should come back to God, love God, obey God. That was the main purpose of the prophets, to call the people back to God. And then they gave incentives for that call. They gave warnings of judgment upon the faithless, and they gave promises of hope and salvation to the faithful. Three things then stamped the prophetic word. Commands, come back to God, follow the covenant, obey him. Threats, if you don't, judgment lies before you. And promises. If you do, great glory and blessing lie before. And I think we should never forget when we read the prophets in the Old Testament and read prophecy that the main point of prophecy is ethical. It is to call us to God and make us obey. They pleaded the future for the sake of the present. Just like we saw last week, Samuel pleaded the past for the sake of the present. If our study of prophecy does not result in sanctification, then we can be sure we're not studying it right. If gazing into the future blurs and hinders our vision of present needs... We are not gazing with the eyes of God. That's a warning about how to think and study about prophecy. Now, what I'd like to do with you this morning is look at a large text in Jeremiah. Beginning back at chapter 21, verse 11, and moving right on through to 23, verse 8. And see how prophets typically preached in those days How they confronted the wickedness of their day. How they warned with threats of judgment. And how they held out final promise of hope and salvation. We'll see the tension here. The threat of annihilation if you do not obey. And the promise that there is going to be an enduring kingdom for David and his offspring. The resolution ultimately is going to be found in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 23, with that distant hope that there's going to come a righteous branch, the king of David, he's going to gather his people, and he's going to make them new forever. Now, a little background on Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, was born in Anatoth, a little town northeast of Jerusalem in about 627 B.C. He was called by God as a boy of about 18, 16 to 20, somewhere in there, to be a prophet and deliver his word to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem. And he prophesied during the last five kings that ticked off pretty fast in Israel. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Now, Josiah, you remember, was a great king, the reformer. During his days, the law was discovered in the temple after having been lost for a long time. And he reformed the people. But that was very short-lived. And after him, the other four kings who finished off Judah were not good kings. And what Jeremiah does in chapter 21, verse 11, to the end of chapter 22, is collect together oracles that he delivered to or about these kings in those last years of Judah. And I want to look at the whole unit because this unit leads up to the promise of the coming righteous branch, the king of David, in the future. First, then, let's look at 21.11 to 22.9. This unit is addressed in general to the house of Judah, the house of David. Now, what Jeremiah does here is describe what a faithful king in general looks like, and he commands it. For example, verse 12 of chapter 21. Execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Then he accompanies that with a warning. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil doings. Then he repeats that very same thing in chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. Do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed any innocent blood in this place. And then again. Like before, he adds an incentive, this time both a promise and a threat. Verse 4, if you will obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David. See? But, verse 5, if you will not heed these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. So, what we see in these first verses is The declaration of what God wants in general from a king who sits on the throne of David. What should that king be like? You are to be with your subjects one who lets righteousness and justice rule and rain down on your people in all your dealings. Devote yourself to delivering those people who are oppressed by unscrupulous people. And don't ever take advantage of those who are most vulnerable. And he gives three categories. Refugees, widows, orphans. Now that's for us too, isn't it? let stop and pause in passing. If the kings of the Old Testament are charged to be that kind of person and devote their energies to that kind of ministry, how much more are those of us who follow King Jesus... Who set that same pattern. No matter what your vocation is today. Doesn't matter what you make your living at. The reason that you're alive. Is to celebrate the riches of God. By meeting real needs. That's all of us I think. Doesn't matter how you make your money. The reason you're on earth. Is to celebrate the riches of God. By meeting the real needs of those people within your reach. God's people, filled with God's Spirit, walking along God's way, will always be gravitating toward, not away, from the people with the greatest need. Now, not only in this passage right here does Jeremiah say what God expects from kings, but he also repeats that old tension. If you obey... Kings will rule on the throne of David. If you disobey, all promises notwithstanding, this house will become a desolation. Now, the rest of chapter 22 takes three of those final kings and zeros right in on them to show how they failed miserably in living the way he just said a king should live. First of all, verses 10 to 17 of chapter 22. Shallum which is another word for Jehoahaz. Shalom was the son of Josiah, but he was deposed from his kingship by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt when Pharaoh was coming back from having been beaten by the Assyrians, and he was taken to Egypt where he died. Now in verse 12, Jeremiah predicts this death and exile. And then in verses 13 to 17... He gives the reasons for why Shalom experienced such a miserable end. He says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. An amazingly practical kind of sin, trying to get people for less than they should be paid. And so he's wiped out. Jeremiah points him back to his father, Josiah, in verses 15 and 16. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? And then it went well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. And then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, says the Lord? Oh, what implications that has for those of us who say we know the Lord. But Shalom had no eyes for anything but gain, not giving. He was only interested in gain, and so he had no business on the throne of David, and he was deposed. Verses 18 to 23, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the older brother of Shalom, also a son of Josiah, who ruled 11 years in Jerusalem until he was killed in his own revolt in 598 B.C. Now, Jeremiah predicts in verse 19 that death says he's going to be cast outside the city like a donkey and abandoned. And then the reason is given in verse 21. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Jehoiakim was a very rebellious and disobedient man both to his Babylonian overlords and to the prophetic word of God. He had no business on the throne of David, therefore, and he was deposed. Verses 24 to 30. Koniah, a shortened form of the word Jeconiah, which is another name for Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the son of Jehoiakim. He became king when he was 18 years old, but after three months surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar in one of his early forays against Jerusalem. 2 Kings 24, 9 says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And then Jeremiah cries out in verse 28, Why? are he and his children hurled and cast into a land which they do not know. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Coniah didn't hear the word of the Lord, but like his father before him, rebelled and therefore was deposed from the throne. The decision falls, and this time it sounds very, very ominous, verse thirty. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, Jeremiah doesn't mention the last king. He skips right over Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the uncle, not the son of Coniah. He reigned 11 years until 586. And that date ought to ring a bell in your mind because in 586, the Babylonians smashed Jerusalem to smithereens and the kingdom was over Forever. And never again was there a monarchy on earth in Israel. Now, Samuel had said it years ago. If you do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. And so it appeared that the prophetic threat rather than the prophetic promise had the last word in 586 B.C. But the text of Jeremiah doesn't stop there. We arrive now at Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 8. And in this text, it begins with another threat, another judgment, but it moves beyond all judgment to a promise sometime in the future, which will be picked up and will be irretrievably good when the king of David rises. Now, in verses 1 and 2, what Jeremiah does is gather together all the evils of Shalom and Jehoiakim and Koniah, whom he calls the shepherds of his people. And he says, woe to you shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. And then skipping down, you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. But even the judgment of destruction, exile, and dispersion cannot overcome or thwart the promise. And in verses 3 to 8, a two-pronged hope is held out. One side of it, there is going to be a remnant regathered from all the lands of this people who has been dispersed. And the other prong is there's going to rise a righteous branch a son of David, to sit upon the throne of David. And his kingdom is going to be great and is going to be forever. Those two things fit here. And I want to look at these two promises one at a time and see how they are being fulfilled today. Let's read the first promise. It comes in two halves. First of all, verses 3 and 4, then verses 7 and 8. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, says the Lord. Then skip down to verse 7. It's repeated again. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when men shall no longer say... As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel out of the north country and all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Now, 70 years after the captivity began in 586, the people started to return and the hopes were very high. But that can't be the final fulfillment of what is promised here, the return of the people after the Babylonian exile, for two reasons. One, the picture here in the prophecy is of a grand era with no more dismay, no more fear, no more worry, no more threat. That has not been the case of Israel at any time. From 586 to this present day. They have never known a fearless, peaceful rule of their king. And that leads to the second reason why this can't be a final fulfillment. The picture here is that there would be a king. A regathering with a king. A righteous branch from all the countries. Not just from Babylon. Now, in verse 6, there's a confirmation of that last observation. We didn't read verse 6. Right at the end there, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. In other words, the return of that southern kingdom, Judah, after the exile, doesn't satisfy the entire prediction here. There must be a coming from everywhere. There must be a return of Israel and Judah. To the land. In my judgment, nothing has happened since those days that could qualify as a fulfillment of this prophecy. The return after Babylon is a partial fulfillment. The rise of the State of Israel in 1948 and the resurgence of Zionism and the return to Israel today is a partial fulfillment. Of The prophecy, but it's only partial even today. And the reason I say that it's only partial is not because all Jews are not yet within the borders of Israel. I don't think the prophecy demands that every living Jew will dwell within the borders of Israel. What is demanded is that there will be a gathered people. It will be a people in peace and security. And all those who want to return to the Lord and to the land will have the freedom to do so. The real reason that I say this is only a partial fulfillment, even what we see happening today, is this. If we were to approach Jeremiah today and say to Jeremiah, Your prophecy is is being fulfilled. The people are returning to the land. A nation has been created for the Israelites. They dwell in prosperity and security. Jeremiah would look at us and say, yes, yes. And the righteous branch, the son of David, the king of Israel, what of him? And we would have to say, well, most of them don't, believe in him the liberal ones have sort of demythologized the messiah into an ethic of love and the more conservative ones have, have rejected him outright and are waiting for another and you know what Jeremiah would say he would say you mean they've come back without their king You mean they presume to dwell in prosperity and enjoy security without the Christ? You mean they're seeking to vindicate themselves? To maintain their own right? They live in the land in rebellion against the king, the son of David, the righteous branch? You call that a fulfillment of my prophecy? It's blasphemy! It's idolatry! We're back where we started! And he would be right. Zionism without the Christ is idolatry. The attempt of Israel to fulfill the first half of Jeremiah's prophecy without the second half of Jeremiah's prophecy is insurrection against the king of kings. The first half of the prophecy you heard, the second half is in verses 4 and 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel Will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, Jehovah, is our righteousness. And that King is no other than Jesus Christ our Lord. As many Jews 2,000 years ago recognized, remember the words of the old, pious, devout Jew Zechariah? When Jesus was born, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His prophets of old. Jeremiah said that His name would be Jehovah is our righteousness. Now what does that mean? I think it means this. God alone Jehovah alone, not we, can save, vindicate, and justify his sinful people. He alone is righteous and can make righteous. Jehovah is our righteousness. But that's the name of the King, the Messiah. And when you put those two facts together, it seems that what he's saying is... We must look to Jehovah alone for our righteousness. But we must look through and to the king, the Messiah, for the application and the ministry of that righteousness. But Israel will not do it. Is it not still true today what Paul said of Israel 2,000 years ago They have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they will not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the goal of the law unto righteousness to everyone who believes. And they won't have him. They will establish their own. Zionism without Christ is a massive attempt at self-justification. It is a massive insubordination against Jehovah and his righteousness. And it is a massive insurrection against the King of Kings, the Son of David. And therefore, even those of us who see in this historical development a step towards fulfillment and the glory to come. Even we have cause to weep with Jeremiah and Paul that Israel is lost forever without the Christ. But in conclusion, it is not as though the word of God has fallen. Millions of people have bowed the knee before the King of Kings and submitted to the righteousness of God, have owned the Messiah whose name is Jehovah, is my righteousness. And not only that, not only is there a glorious people of God who have bowed the knee to the Messiah, but one day, one day, God, by His Spirit, is going to draw all Israel into the family of the redeemed broken off branches are going to be grafted in to the branch of David now that does not mean that every Jew who ever lived will be saved what it means is this sometime in the future And probably not too distant, there is going to be a whole people of Israel who dramatically turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, the crucified one. Here's the way Zechariah described it in chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Jeremiah's word has not fallen. The king has come. He has died. He has risen again. And today he is pouring out his spirit, the spirit of compassion and prayer upon the whole world. And everybody who is moved by that spirit to forsake self-justification and to turn themselves over to God and seek justification from him alone will be saved. Jew and Gentile on the same ground I think the breeze is already blowing over Israel we hear reports of it in this land and all over the world and my desire is that we will say with Paul this morning my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved even so come Lord Jesus